Hey, Ian, welcome to the Revenue Throughput Podcast. Thanks so much for having me here. Well, Ian, I, th- I think one thing that's very helpful for our audience to get full context, simple question, uh, who do you work with primarily? And I'm sure there's a wide range of people, but who do you primarily focus on and what do you primarily do for them? And we'll take it from there. So most of my clients are in the B2B, business-to-business side of the sales and business growth world. And it's it's typically people who are running sales organizations or CEOs of small to mid-sized companies. Um, I work with clients that range from small businesses through multi-billion dollar multinationals. And the only exception that B2B space is the high net worth wealth management practices, because the way that individuals make those decisions tends to be very similar to how B2B customers make decisions. And so what I help these people do is shift the focus from price to value, condense the sales cycle, better earn attention, and, um, and really avoid being commoditized. Okay. Well, wow. Those are, those are worthy objectives. And I'm sure, you know, the art of doing it is, is the whole thing, right? Like this, this, it's not, if it were easy, everybody would be doing it and and they're not. Now, what's interesting about that too, when you talked about that high net worth individual, and I won't focus on that primarily, but it's, it really describes when the sale is complex or involves other voices. It's not transactional. It's not impulse. Right. No one buys a cyclotron impulsively. It's sure. you know, it's a considered purchase. And those kind of financial like wealth advisory services, a lot of people get involved in opining as to whether or not we should do, you know, where should we put our portfolio and things like those are big questions that are complex. Sure. And and you know what? I think that's a great point to make, Jose, because in the in the grand scheme of things, it's those more complex decisions. Most of my clients are selling into businesses or selling the individuals who already have an alternative. It's not like people are saying, well, I don't have a wealth management person. It's not like someone's saying, well, I don't have an IT vendor who can support me. In most cases, we're trying to help people understand why they might be better off switching to your organization versus whoever they're working with today. And those complexities bring some nuances where really the individual's need to be focusing, uh, anybody who's selling these types of products and services needs to focus on what's important to the client rather than here's our pitch deck. Let me tell you about us because here's a newsflash. No one cares about us. They just care about their own needs. Well, well, that's interesting. And and it, you know, you have a book out, Same Site Selling. And of course, that's the name of your academy as well. That I feel like there's a big idea in that those three words. So if you could just expand on why you chose that 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 titling. Sure. So I co-wrote Same Side Selling with a guy named Jack Quarles. And as most people would guess from Jack's last name, Quarles, Jack is a guy who spent two decades in purchasing and procurement. And uh, Jack and I are dear friends, and he, he's, he contributed tremendous insight into the book. And what we looked at is that almost every, almost every book that's ever written about sales, every methodology uses one of two methodologies. It either uses a game metaphor or a battle metaphor. And in a game metaphor, there's a winner and a loser. So I guess that means that your client would be the loser, which doesn't make a lot of sense. Or if you use the battle metaphor, the loser dies. And then we wonder why we have these adversarial tensions between buyer and seller. And the approach that Jack and I took was more, think of it as the buyer and seller are putting a puzzle together. 
And so it's all about finding the fit and seeing if my puzzle pieces align with your puzzle pieces. If so, we can create a beautiful piece of art. But if they're not the right fit, then if we try to force the fit, you're not going to end up with a nice picture at the end of it. It's still going to be a mess and it's not going to work. So it's about finding that fit and, and taking that collaborative approach that's all integrity based that says the client's outcome is more important than the sale. I want you to just, I want to restate that because I think that's a really like, that's a, that's a pithy quote, right? The client's outcome is more important than the sale. Correct. Right? So, okay. So now, and so I guess the same side idea is that I'm on the same side as my client. We're not, exactly. we're, we're not, we're not sitting opposite on two sides of a table in an arm wrestling match. We're sitting side by side at a table with our with our puzzle pieces out on the table trying to see, hey, is this going to fit? Do we have all the pieces we need? Are we missing a puzzle piece? Because if I know that we can't put this puzzle together, it's my job as the seller to tell you, here's a risk. And in fact, if as the seller, here's the interesting part. One of the things I ask people is I ask people in sales, I say, so I want you to think of the buyer-seller interaction. It starts the initial contact. At the finish line, we're all high-fiving and celebrating, popping champagne. What's the finish line? And most people in sales will say, what's well, the contract? It's getting the order. I say, great. What would your client say is the finish line? And some people will say, well, it's mm. delivery. And I say, well, it's not even delivery. It's results. Because if you don't get the results that you're looking for, you're probably not interested in it. So then I ask people, okay, so if you were the customer which vendor would you rather work with? The vendor who's focused on the sale or the vendor who's asking you questions about what we're gonna measure in terms of results. And people uniformly, when I, when I do this kind of exercise with executives, they say, oh, well, I'd focus on the results. And then I'll say to them, so how many of you would be willing to pay more for the vendor who's focused on results versus the vendor who's focused on the sale? And universally, everyone will raise their hand and say, yeah, I'd, I'd pay more for that. How much more? The most common answer is between 10 and 20%. And I don't mean the com most common answer is 16. I mean, the most common answer is, I don't know, somewhere between 10 and 20% is what they say. Hmm. And then I asked the following question, which is, how much less would you have to pay for it to be a good deal, but you don't get the results that you need? And the answer is, doesn't matter what I pay. If I don't get the results I need, it's not a good deal. It's like if you were on a trip with your family and let's say you got five people and you show up at the car rental place and they say, I'm sorry, the minivan you reserved is not available. But you know what I do have for you is I have this, this two-seater Corvette and I'll give it to you for the same price. You're like, well, it doesn't matter what the price is. And, and for a split second, you're thinking, maybe I take the vet. Maybe I go cruising. I go cruising around, and good things can happen. They and can then, Uber. Then, they can Uber, right? Exactly. It's a split Uber. second decision. You say, "Well, maybe it isn't going to pan out so well." But but the idea is that if we focus on the results, it makes a big difference. So part of it is how do we train our teams? How do we train our people to ask the right questions so the client sees us focusing on the results and outcomes, not just the sale. Well, but there's something interesting, two things that immediately come to mind, right? One is, it seems like for the seller to live inside that headspace, they have to really commit to that as a way of thinking about it. Absolutely. They can't just take on, like, you can't, you can train maybe, this is how you sound like a same side seller, but that will fail under the weight of the pressure of the re, of, of real life. It just won't you come You can't across. fake it. 
you, you can't you can't fake it. And and so questions that people ask are questions like, so if you if you were the buyer and I was selling whatever, some piece of software, some service, some whatever, I would say to you, well, Jose, what can we measure six months down the road so that you and I know that this was a worthwhile investment, mm -hmm. that you made the right decision? What are we going to measure together? And you might say, well, I'm going to measure speed to market. I'm going to measure um, quality. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to measure these different things. Great. Even if we deliver everything we say we would deliver, what might prevent you from getting that? And you might say, well, if our people don't know how to use the system properly. Okay. How likely is that? Well, it's, it's certainly possible. Okay, sh should we build in training into our proposal? Yeah, that's a great idea. Now, if you just came out of the shoot and said, oh, and, and we want you to buy all this additional training, the client would say, oh, they're just trying to sell us other stuff. But now it's centered around the client achieving those results. And it's understanding how to ask the right questions in the right way that give the, give the reps the ability to focus on those things. Now, the other thing is that for, for my top performing client organizations, they actually have incentives for the salespeople based on the results that the client achieves. So once the sale is over, that's fine, but it's the rep's job to follow up and make sure the client's achieving the results. And once the client confirms an email that says, yep, we're achieving these results, it's great, then the rep gets the last portion of their incentive-based compensation. Now, some reps say, well, that's not fair. I'm not responsible for that. The smart reps say, wait a minute. If I follow up with them and confirm that they got the results they were hoping to get, I'm likely to get repeat and referral business. So the smart reps say, of course I want that deal because now I get to follow up. In fact, it's my job to follow up and make sure they got the results. And then they say, oh yeah, I got great results. All right. Can you think of one or two other people you know who might have been might be in the same predicament you were in six months ago and would like to get the same results that you've realized. And they say, yeah, so-and-so and so-and-so. Now you have those referrals inside or outside of their organization just because you delivered results. Well, I, I think that's brilliant because for a couple of reasons. One, um, you don't want to say that sales teams are necessarily completely coin-operated, but there is an element of the mindset, especially veteran salespeople, that they need to know okay, what management wants me to do, they're going to figure out a way to put it in my comp plan. And if it's not in my comp plan, it must not really be that important to management. Sure. So if you want salespeople who follow up, putting some part of their comp tied to that says, okay, that's important. It's a signal that that's really important. But the way you've described it, it says, yeah, and the real benefit is not that you do it, check, collect an extra 10% comp, it's by doing that you've opened up a new panor a new view to what your customer really cares about, what they need. For example, the customer said, well, we got a lot of what we wanted, but not everything. Yeah. I'd rather know that early before exactly. they just drop me like a hot potato six months from now when some other person says they can do what, what I had promised to do or what I had promised for my firm. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And and that's that's an element that, in whatever you're delivering. I mean, you know, in the, we've got this digital platform, the same side selling Academy. There are things that when we had originally launched it, that we would proactively follow up with people and say, how's this meeting this need, this need, and that need that you said were important to you. And people would say, well, it's doing really well in A and B, but C, we're not quite getting. And then we realized, okay, we need to add some additional resources that round that out for them. 
because even though it seemed to us like it, like it should be doing it on its own, it wasn't. And so it's having that level of objectivity where you're truly saying, what is preventing the client from achieving this? The easiest thing to do is say, oh, my client just doesn't get it. It's their problem. You know, unfortunately, it's never their problem. It's always our problem. And if we can get there ahead of them, then they're going to be thrilled. Well, even the thought, let's say, it, let's say it is. I mean, obviously, all clients are going to fall somewhere on the bell curve. Some are going to be amazingly cooperative and do everything you ask them to do, and they're going to get great results. A lot are going to be somewhat in the middle, do not quite as much as you'd like yep. them to do, but they'll do. And some are just going to be like, hey, they're just don't get it. It still becomes my problem as the seller eventually. Right. Exactly. Well, because yeah, 20, 20 years ago, if they weren't happy with what you did, they might tell two or three people they know. Now they'll tell two or three million people they've never met. So it's critical that we deliver results that people can say, wow, Jose really delivered on this. He achieved this result or that result. I mean, it's, you know, I'm fortunate in that having grown businesses from zero to a couple billion dollars in value, when I'm working with client organizations and people say, well, you know, how confident you, you can deliver this? I can point to here are eight people you can talk to. Here, here are testimonials and, you know, not from something generic, but here's the person's name, title, and company that went from 17 million to 109 million in three years. Well, what did they do the prior three years? They went from 11 million to 14 million the prior three years. And then we took them from 14 to 109. Oh, right. Can I talk? Well, you can talk to him, but you can read his story or watch his video of him saying it. And so once you deliver results, you're never really selling again. It's just a matter of Do most of my time. Results? Yeah, but most of my time is spent just making sure that I feel that the other person, that in essence, the buyer is willing to take the journey because it, none of this stuff is effortless. Everything requires a certain level of work that sure. we have to do to get it done. So I tend to look at clients and say, who's going to be a good case study 18 months from now. And if I don't think you're going to be a good case study, I'm just not that interested. Now, I'm fortunate that I, I come to this from a place of abundance where I'm not necessarily looking for new business. I just look for opportunities where someone's going to be a great case study. Um, so it's easier for me to say that from, than for other people. But what I will tell you is that for organizations that are intently focused on the results for their clients, they end up in the same place in pretty short order where people say, these people always deliver. Everyone you talk to says these people deliver. And 90% of it is asking the client what you're going to measure and then confirming that they get it. Because for many of the organizations I work with, they were already pretty good at delivering results, just they never talked about it. So their clients didn't even know that they had delivered results for them. They knew that they had spent money, but they weren't necessarily monitoring the results themselves. And, and that's often the case where you have, let's say, a service provider that's been loyally providing a good service. For a period of time and then gets cut off for some reason and say yeah. what happened and because that connection was never made explicit they never had that conversation had they had that conversation you know the cfo maybe it's the new cfo saying we got to cut this cost and not realizing well if you do that you're you're actually like pulling the plug on the machine you know it's actually yeah. important but, but so so one thing that i, I want to get into just a little bit ian because i think it's it's important to our listeners who a lot of uh Folks who listen to the Revenue Throughput podcast are going to be business owners mm -hmm. running industrial type businesses, uh, distribution, manufacturing, and so on. They may have small sales teams or they grew up in a sales culture that was, like you said, game theory based. 
yeah. or war, you know, metaphors. It's yeah. a football game. We got to score touchdowns, all of that. How do you talk to somebody like that who's so, you know, that's 20 years of their career. That's how you do it. You have to have a certain amount of aggression. You go for it. And they hire people who have that. And, and what you're describing, I think in practice still rewards somebody who has intensity, all right? Like intense work is sure. always, you know, it's a good attribute sure. to be successful. But it does require a real shift in languaging and how they talk about it. So how do you tell that person that it's going to be worth that shift and that they'll be able to make it? Because they may feel that what you're describing is a little bit of an out-of-body experience. Yeah, well, absolutely. And and like any other type of organizational change or organizational learning, there's a process. And the, the, the reality is this, is that they're not going to believe anything that I tell them or you tell them per se. But what they will believe is if if I if I ask them questions, if we engage them in a process so they can see how this is working for other people, if they put themselves in the client's shoes and you say, so if you're the client, which way are you going to respond better? This way or that way? Forget about what you do today. Which way do you think you're going to get better results? Let's test this in this environment. You can do it four, four times your way, four times this other way to see what kind of results you get. And so I, I've had... Um, I've had the great pleasure of working with some teams that are just like you described. They've been in the industry 20 years. They come into, let's say, a live training session with their arms crossed and, you know, they don't want to hear anything. I've been in and that then, room. <laughs> yeah. And then 10, 10 minutes later, 10 minutes later, the arms come uncrossed. Five minutes later, they're leaning in. 10 minutes later, they're actively engaged because much of my approach is helping people see, th see everything through the lens of their client. So very often people in sales suffer from what I call axis displacement disorder. It's a different version of ADD. Okay. And in axis displacement disorder, that's where they believe that the axis of the earth has shifted and the world revolves around them. So they, they walk into a meeting and they talk about, here's what we do and what I do and what my background is when our organization does and people don't care. So instead what we have to do is say, here's my understanding of what you're trying to achieve and the challenges you're facing in your business. And we've helped these two other organizations just like yours, but I know that your needs are different from theirs. So help me understand because just because we solved it for them doesn't mean we can solve it for you. And what the client says at that point is, well, if you solved it for them, why wouldn't it work for us? Well, everyone has unique needs. I just want to make sure. And now who's doing the convincing? The client's convincing you why your stuff should work for them. As opposed to if you come in and say, our stuff's the greatest ever, you just don't know it yet, the client says, well, we'll see about that. And it just changes that dynamic, and that's what we're trying to get to, because once they're trying to convince you, it's easier for us to end up on the same side, where like, if I'm saying I've delivered great results for someone else, but I don't know if it'll work for you, and I truly believe that, then I start asking questions about, well, for people who are successful, they also did A, B, and C. Is that something your team is comfortable doing? Because if not, it may not work. No, we could do that. Okay. And now we're just trying to figure out what's going to work. Well, well, you know, th that also raises the um, the question, and you talked about your colleague who uh, wrote the book with you. Jack, right? yeah. And um, Jack Quarles. So sometimes the getting on the same side, so you, I'm visualizing a metaphor. You walk over to that side of the table, so to speak, yep. and say, let's look at the puzzle together. 
But sometimes the other side will walk back around and they want to be on the other side as well. So it's not just what the seller wants. Sometimes the buyer, especially larger company professional procurement, often have a very adversarial, they've, they've gone to, like we've gone to sales training for the last 20 years, they've gone to buyer training. They have. So, how, so do you, how do you break that down? So the interesting thing is this. So Jack, in, in spending two decades in purchasing and procurement, I, um, I asked him, I said, well, Jack, so the biggest fear that the procurement person has is, is what? And he said, well, what do you think it is? I said, well, you know, they, they, they don't want to overpay for stuff. He said, it's not the procurement guy's biggest fear. He said, rarely does a procurement person get fired because they paid a little bit too much for something. They get fired when they bought the wrong thing. They get fired when something mm -hmm. down, down the process doesn't work anymore because they thought they were saving a buck and now it's cost the company market share. It's cost them, you know, it's cost them perception in the marketplace. Their reputation gets tarnished. You know, everything downstream gets affected. So the buyer's job in many cases is to convince you that all they care about is the price. But if you said to the buyer, if the buyer says, you know, gets back to their side of the table and says, well, the bottom line is I have to know what this is going to cost because I think you guys are too expensive. And if as the seller, if you said, my sense is that from what we discussed, these are the three most important things in terms of results for you. And though there are areas that we or another vendor could cut corners, my concern is that if we cut one of those corners, it would jeopardize those results. And so for our clients, we're not willing to take that risk on their behalf. Do you think we're making a mistake? And that's when the procurement people come back to your side and say, no, well, that's important. But we also want to pay less. Look, if there was a way that we could deliver those results for less, I would have told you that. And I know that other vendors might be comfortable um, doing it at a lower price and assuming some of that risk. Our clients rely on us to deliver these types of results. And introducing additional risk isn't an option. So if you're comfortable with additional risk, we may not be the right people because we're never going to be the cheapest. What do you think we should do? And now it's when the procurement person has to do some real soul searching. Because and, you've and just because right. anytime the client is focused on price, if you shift the focus to results, that's the scale. That's right. that's that's the balance. And usually what happens is the client says, I don't know, your price is too high. And the rep says, Well, let me see what I can do, which is an indication to the client that you have room that you can now give what's called a unilateral concession. So you're willing to give up something without getting anything in return. It's, it's a slippery slope and it's just a dangerous well, path and it to go actually, down. It actually endangers the confidence on the buyer that anything you said was actually what you meant. Exactly. Because everything shifts. But on that note, Ian, we are, we are out of time. This has been a great conversation. I've, I've really so enjoyed having you on the Revenue Throughput Podcast. Uh, quick question, because somebody listening, I'm sure they would geek out like I did on, on this conversation, and they want to know more about you and what you do. What's the best way to get in contact with you, learn about you, find out what you do uh, more deeply. Two best, I mean, obviously people can, can connect to me on LinkedIn. There aren't that many Ian Altmans out there and there certainly aren't any others that have same side selling as part of their profile. It's samesideselling.com or ianaltman.com. You'll get all the information. And if you reach out on LinkedIn, just mention uh, mention Jose here and that'll make life a whole lot easier. So I know uh, I know where you found me. And any questions that people have or follow up, feel free to reach out. 
Fantastic. Ian, thank you so much. You've been a wonderful guest. Really appreciate it. Thanks. A lot of fun. Thanks for listening to another episode of Business Growth on Purpose. If you like the show, hit subscribe and leave us a review to help other people find the podcast. And if you're ready to take the next step in driving intentional growth for your business, come check out what we're doing at valueprop.com. We've developed industry-leading programs and systems to help B2B owners take control of their growth. Until then, thanks for listening to another episode of Business Growth on Purpose.